Hey, I'm going to say say a word before uh, we look at the word, and uh, just indulge me for a second. Um, one of the things that I love hearing Mr. Sammy's testimony is uh, <clears throat> we have a really neat opportunity because you, you look around here, we've got a lot of really great young people. But I think uh, one of the things that is uh, sometimes dangerous is for our really awesome, wonderful young people to not know all the really wonderful, awesome old folks that we've got at the church too. And I'll just make this comment. If all you do is come to church on Sunday morning, you will be very happy to call us your church. If you begin to get involved in other ways, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you'll begin to call us your family. And we see that in all kinds of ways. I talked to a lady who's a, a, a widow and a relatively recent transplant to this area. And uh, she's come and worshipped with us a little time, a few times, and everyone's been very nice to her. But she's kind of commented on, on just how lonely she feels. And I said, well, if you just come to worship, you'll feel that way all the time because we'll just be your church. We won't be your family. And so I don't know uh, why the Lord has laid that on my heart to say that, but there's, I'll trust that there's someone that needs to hear that. This morning, as we kind of talk about this theme of am I giving more than I'm receiving, will be in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. You'll see uh, the main text of Scripture that we're on. It'll be on the screen behind us. <clears throat> but that's also page 703 in your pew Bible. If you need to take a peek at that, uh, you can do that. And uh, here's a great encouragement. The passage that we're looking at today exists within a larger scope of Scripture called the Little Apocalypse. So isn't that encouraging here this morning? You know, We're going to talk about the Little Apocalypse, the... Olivet Discourse of Jesus. And in this, Jesus is talking exclusively about the end times. So all you prophecy buffs, you know, break out your charts and your maps and we'll get ready to go. We're going to have a good time this morning. This passage has a lot of really well-loved and well-known parables. There's the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. There's the parable of the talents. And this morning we'll look at the parable of the sheep and the goats. When we talk about the end times from a biblical perspective, that means we're talking about judgment. And that is the most taboo conversation to have. It is the least politically correct uh, biblical topic to preach about because it's not a popular topic. But denying that judgment is a reality, that all of mankind will stand before God and give an account for their life, ignoring it or denying it doesn't make it go go away. And so today, one of the things that we'll find is that... um, there are people who like to tell you that they know when Jesus is coming back and they'll break out their, you know, multicolored maps to prove exactly, you know, since Israel was founded, here's when it's going to happen. You, you have my permission to put, your, put cotton in your ears and not listen to them if they are telling you when Jesus is coming back because the Bible makes emphatically clear the Lord Jesus Christ himself makes clear no one will know the time, but we can know the conditions upon which we will be judged. And that's what our passage is going to talk about here this morning. Uh, three quick points. We're going, to, we're going to run through this kind of quickly. And we're not going to, you know, kind of squeeze out all of the juice from every detail that we can. Uh, but there's a very particular kind of overarching principle that I want us to see this morning. And we'll begin with our first point that Jesus is the judge because he alone is king. Listen to what verses 31 through 33 say. <clears throat> When the Son of Man comes back in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will 
sit on the throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. You gotta love the imagery here, just getting into this uh, story that Jesus tells. It's great imagery. Jesus uses the popular term that he uses to refer to himself. He is the son of man. We also know from a, a fuller exploration of the scriptures that he is also the son of God. He liked to use the son of man imagery because it would get him in less trouble with the religious establishment. Son of God, them's fighting words. Son of man, that's ambiguous. And so he could get away with this popular title as the son of man. But it says that there will come a time when the son of man will come in his glory. Now, if we know anything about what we celebrate at the incarnation when Jesus is born as a baby, it is not a coming in glory. There was, there was small pockets of glory that exploded around the birth of Jesus, the angels singing, you know, Gloria in excelsis Deo, you know, God has been born. This plan is coming to fruition. But Jesus' first coming was in humility and misunderstanding and mistreatment. But the Bible says that there will be a time when the Son of Man will come in his glory. He was misunderstood and mistreated the first time. The second time, it will be, it will be impossible to misunderstand or to mistreat Jesus. That was the purpose of his first coming. The purpose of his second coming is to come in glory. And look who comes with him. All the angels come with him. And look what he does. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Who sits on a throne? The king. Now it's not said that. The only title for Jesus that we've seen right now is the son of man. But he comes in glory. He comes with glorious attendance and he sits upon a throne of glory. And my, my email and blog feeds were exploding this morning with how did Christians in South Carolina vote? I just want to go, oh, isn't it just refreshing to hear for a second, turn off Fox News, turn off CNBC, turn off whoever, and to hear that Jesus is the king, that he rules over all things, and we don't have to put up with the foolishness of how this person is photoshopping pictures of this guy, and this guy is twisting this guy's policy statement, and is Ben Carson even awake? You know, all these issues that we're just dealing with, you just go, oh, does anybody want to vote for Jesus for president? I would surely like to. He says that he's king. And I, I, not only is he king, he's judge. And this, this is a little kind of play on, play on words a little bit, but we all have a mental picture of who God is. And I think when we think of God the Father, okay, this may not be you, but like when I talk to people, I hear this. When we think of God the Father, we think of a, a, a really old guy, maybe even stooped over a little bit with white kind of flowing hair, and he's got like a really long beard, you know, kind of like, you know, it's just like a kung fu beard, you know, kind of hanging down. And he's just kind of a kind old man. And then what's the mental picture that we sometimes have of Jesus? He's like this perpetual 30-year-old. Like he never ages. You know, that picture in your grandma's house, that's Jesus. That was him 2,000 years ago. That's him today. That'll be him in eternity and glory. So God is this, God the Father is this old man and kind of judge you know, he sits, he's wise, he's accorded judgment. But the passage actually will say here that Jesus is king, and one of his responsibilities as king is to judge. And I just want to assert to you that that is really entirely appropriate 
Because the basis of our judgment will be what have we done with King Jesus? Have we obeyed him or have we not obeyed him? Because every single person in this room, whether you are in a saving relationship with Christ or not, you are in a relationship with God as king. It's just whether you are an obedient subject or whether you are a disobedient subject. And so the one who sacrificed his very life, that bore the sins of the world, he's the one that has the ability, the rightful ability to determine where our eternal destiny will be. And did you happen to see who comes before this glorious throne, these glorious attendants to this glorious one who sits there? It is all the nations. It is every single one of them from the slums of India to the glittering Big Ben in London, from uh, the man in his business suit to the um, person in Papua New Guinea running around with a loincloth. Every person from every tribe and tongue and nation, not just believers, all mankind, all of the nations will be gathered before him because Jesus is not just the American God. He's not just the, you know, Jewish God. He is the, he is the, he's not a regional deity, the Lord of all. And every person will stand before him to give an account for his life. And what he begins to tell us in verses 34 through 40 is again this point that I've emphasized. We may not know the time of his return, but we can know the conditions for our judgment. And we'll see, we'll camp out here at point two for a little bit longer, but we see this point that service is faith in action. It is really easy for people to say that they have faith. Oh, I got faith. I got faith. I ain't been in church in 20 years. Haven't ever served anybody. I've never done anything with it, but I got faith. And there's this, there's this very real need in our churches to say, really, really? Okay, you have faith? How has it changed you? How has it changed you? What in the world has happened? What is going on? How are you obeying King Jesus? Oh, I don't obey King Jesus. Then you don't have faith. So service is faith in action. Listen to the scriptures, verses 34 through 40. <clears throat> Uh, The king has separated the sheep and the goats. In verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, uh, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. A couple things that are very important in this passage. Number one, it says that the sheep are given an inheritance. They, they receive this kingdom as an inheritance. And this is very important because it is not a reward or a wage. We do not earn it. It is something that is given as a gift and is a blessing based upon a relationship. 
uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. The chances of you inheriting something from someone you are not related to are about nil. Probably not going to happen. If you're going to inherit someone, it's not because you earned it or because you did something. It's going to be because of a relationship. And so that's hugely important in this passage. But I love the way that it talks about that. Did you see the way that it talks about this kingdom that, that you get? He says it is a kingdom that is prepared for these sheep from before the foundation of the world. It's been prepared for you. Now that's mind-blowing. And it's a very strong um, Bible teaching on God's sovereign election. He knows before you were born who's going to believe. And he says it's been prepared for you. You're going to inherit this because you're part of my family. And you were part of my family even before you... I knew you were a part of my family before you knew you were a part of my family. But then he goes on in the rest of this passage to give a very serious talk about our personal responsibility to act like we belong to the family of God. It's not all on God's initiative. It's also our response to show that we have really experienced the life that God has given us. But Jesus speaks to them in this passage, and he says, thank you for your personal service to me. And he lists six things that they did. He was hungry, and they helped. He was thirsty. Uh, he was a stranger. He was naked. He was sick, and he was in prison. And if you take these six things and you boil them down to their most, uh, I, I think, kind of lowest common denominator, it all amounts to these sheep having done two things. They were a companion and they practiced hospitality. They were a companion. They visited someone in prison. They uh, provided for someone in need. They were hospitable and made sure that they had uh, food and water and a roof over their head and clothes on their body. And so it's not that they're just doing like a thousand different things well. They're really doing two things well. They're being... They're being a genuine companion to people in need. And they're being hospitable, which means they're using their stuff to help people who don't have stuff. That's really what it comes down to. And here's, here's, here's where I think this ties into us contemporarily for our church. If you are going to be the kind of companion and to be the kind of hospitable person that God would have you to be, what kind of investment is that going to require of you? Is it going to require your time? Yeah, you're going to have to take time out of your schedule to go visit someone in the hospital. <clears throat> when Reed goes to prison, <laughs> it's going to cost you time and maybe a little gas money to go see him. Serve in the nursery. That's not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> Might be a cup of something else for some of you. No, 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 not the nursery. It's going to require some stuff of you. And the whole point in this passage, I think, really parallels what we're saying as a church, is that if we are going to build disciples the way Jesus has told us to, we have got to invest our time, our talent, and our treasure. And this is the very thing that Jesus is commending in these sheep. He's saying, guys, you have done it through companionship and through hospitality. You have invested your time, your talent, your treasure. It's not been popular. It's not been cool. But you've done it. And the thing that's even more beautiful is on the part of the sheep in verses 37 through 39, there is this wonderful, beautiful, amazing unpretentiousness. They go, um, you talking to me? Like, I remember 
I remember that guy in Sunday school that was broke and like I bought him groceries one day. I don't know. I think I would remember buying groceries for Jesus. Uh, I think I would remember changing Jesus's tire on I-77. I think I would remember, I certainly would remember if Jesus was naked. Um, when did we do these things? And here's what's awesome. What Jesus is commending them for is genuine news for them. They're like, we did this for you? I remember this person that I did it for and this person that I did it for, but you? They are completely unaware and it becomes very clear that they weren't working to earn their salvation. If they were working to earn their salvation, they'd say, hey, Jesus, you forgot one because in addition to the hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, and in prison, I did this, 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 and this. They're not keeping track. They have no clue. And so when Jesus begins to commend them, it's awesome. I love it because we don't think on this level. We think that when we're serving in the nursery, we're just making it easy for moms and dads to come to worship, and we don't think that we're serving God. So sometimes when we talk about child care, this is a tangent, forgive me. Reed and I have talked about this a ton. There's a temptation to say, oh, what we do with our minors is child care. We just want to make sure that they don't burn the church down. Guys, it's ministry. It's ministry. Don't devalue what we do by calling it child care. I mean, you, you have to be a Christian to do child care. But a church does ministry no matter what age they are. That's a hugely important thing because it's not, it's not derogatory to minister to children. It's a very high and noble calling. It's a good thing to love on them and to try to model the love of God to these little ones and for them to learn to love people not in their biological family, people in their faith family. And so I love this because um, when Saul was converted and became Paul, you remember he's on the road to Damascus and he sees the bright light. And there's a voice that comes and nobody who's traveling with him hears the voice. But Saul hears the voice and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he says? He says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul goes, I ain't persecuting you, I'm persecuting the church. Jesus goes, same thing, buddy. So here's the really humbling thing for me to say. Is there's a temptation, I think, to look at pastors and staff as organizational bureaucrats. And I mean that with every bit of disdain that I can. Okay? That there's, there's I don't know, some Ponzi scheme that if we get more people involved in ministry, that's not it. Service to the church is service to God. And so when we say, hey, serve It's not because we have a spreadsheet to fill out. It's because you have an opportunity, and if you're a Christian, a responsibility to serve, to invest your time, your talent, and your treasure. Now, here's the issue. As Christians, certainly as Protestants, this passage raises some questions for us because this passage about judgment is all about service. It's all about works, and it doesn't mention faith or grace at all. Something's fishy about this passage. Well, here's the deal. Not every story tells the whole story. I mean, this is part of a larger book called the Bible. And we know from the Bible very clearly that works are important, but we are saved by faith, not saved by our works. And so here's the issue. Here's the way that we say this. When we talk about the sheep, their service, their works are evidence of their salvation, not the basis for it. Okay, if you get this down... 
you will be moving in the right direction. Because I think sometimes, even in the church, we think if we do enough good stuff, God will be happy with us. No, God's happy with us because we've placed our faith in Christ. There's nothing you can do to make God more happy with you. You are uh, accepted in the Son. So what do we do? We are now liberated to serve, not trying to earn anything, to just serve with the right heart. In verse uh, 37, the sheep are called the righteous in their work. The service that they've done that they've not been keeping track of is just demonstrating that their heart has been transformed by the grace of God. Listen to these scripture passages. I've put a, several of them there. They're not on the screen, so you just have to listen to them. Acts 20, 35. Uh, Luke says this, In every way I've shown you that by laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak and to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus. For he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Luke's reminding us, the Lord himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. What scripture passage is that found in? Nowhere. Those words outside of Luke 20, 35 are found nowhere in the New Testament. That's like, who said is cleanliness next to godliness? Nobody, that's not in the Bible. It should be, but it's not. Um, <laughs> what's happening is, I love this, because John says, Jesus said all kinds of stuff that like if we kept writing, this book would be never ending. This is one of those things. Luke kind of says, hey, you guys all know. Jesus said it's better to give than receive. No, we don't because it's not in the scripture. Maybe they knew it because they were contemporaries of his. So it's a wonderful little way. It's like just by reciting what he knows, he's given us another saying of Jesus that we would have had no knowledge about. That Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, just verses 6 and 7. Paul says this, remember this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, but especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Guys, the Bible says that membership in the church is a really important thing. As a matter of fact, according to this passage, it would be wrong for us to love somebody like they're in our family if they're not in our family. And, and this makes sense. Um, you know, we got a lot of parents here, and I love your kids, okay? But if you've ever watched me kind of roughhouse or hug on my girls, it would not be appropriate for me to uh, pinch your boys or hug on your girls like I do with my kids because they're my kids, okay? Yeah, I get an amen back there. Thank you. Um, that, see, that's what I'm talking about, Reed going to prison. He would shoot me if I did something. And he'd be right because it's not right. And in the same way, the Bible says, whoever your household of faith is, you're supposed to do good to everybody, but especially to the household of faith. That means when somebody joins our church, we have a responsibility to them, and they become part of a body that now has responsibility for everybody that calls this church their home. That's the way it's supposed to work. Hugely important. Deuteronomy 16, 17 says, everyone must appear with a gift suited to their means according to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. That's a hugely important verse. Because Man, I sound like Donald Trump. Uh, it's a very important verse because it's saying that your giving should be proportionate. That you're supposed to give according to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. Now here's one way that our giving will look different. Income. I mean, you look down a row. 
You know, uh, you know you, I'm looking here, Petro family. Uh, you got two kids, zero income. Uh, two kids, zero income. Mom and dad income, zero income in the middle, unless they have a really generous, um, you know, um, uh, what's it called, allowance system, you know. No? Okay, zero. Sorry, kids. Um, but you look down any of these rows, and it's, it's doot, 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 doot when it comes to income. The Bible says, listen, your standard of giving is not Job. You know, it's not keeping up, it's not keeping up with whoever. It is the proportion to which God has blessed you. So here's, here's the challenge. According to Deuteronomy 16, 17, if you only give a little, how much have you been blessed? Nobody wants to say that. That's really kind of mean, isn't it? No, it's kind of biblical. You give according to the standard by which you think God has blessed you. So for some of you, God's a $5 God. We got some people that he's a $20,000 God. We got a lot of people in between there. And the Bible's saying, give according to the proportion. Here's one way in which what we've been allotted is all the same. Income is distributed differently, but we all have 168 hours in our week. Anybody have more than 168 hours? Anybody married to someone that has more than 168 hours? They're like, they get like tons of stuff done. You're like, dang, I just did this. They did this. <clears throat> they just make more of their time than they do. They don't get more hours. So play along with me here. 168 hours a week, we've all got it. Let's take out 50 hours for work. Now, I know there's some people here that are retired, so this doesn't apply to you. Let's take out 50 hours for work. We'll include maybe some commuting time here. So you subtract 50 from 168. You've got 118 hours left over. Let's just assume that you get a nice fit, eight hours of sleep a night, uh, every night of the week. And some of you are going, dear God, I would love to get eight hours of sleep a night. That's 56 hours a week. So now that takes us down to a, a remaining balance of 62 hours a week. Let's just be super gracious and throw in an hour a day for each meal. So three hours a day for eating. Man, that's a, that's a lot of buffets. Um, that's a lot. That's 21 hours a week. So by the time we take out 50 hours for work, 56 hours for sleep, 21 hours for meals, guess how much time you are left with? We've already counted for work, for sleep, and for eating. What else is left? 41 hours in your week. Does that surprise anybody? You have an entire work week left. Oh, no, wait, you don't. I'm sorry, because you spend all of that time on Facebook. How many of you, your sanctification would increase a thousandfold if you just deleted your Facebook account? God bless you for having the integrity to raise your hand. She's like, "Mm mm-mm, yeah, right here. When we talk about giving our time back, listen, giving your money back is important. As a matter of fact, we did the math. We're like $1,600 behind budget right now, which we do this. We're above, we're below. We're above, we're below. 300 people in worship today. If everybody gave $4.08, we'd be solid. You think about that. Like, you take 300 people times $5 a week. That's $1,500 times 52. I don't know what that is. Somebody's going to have to do the math on that. If the people that just showed up for worship gave $5 a week more than they give right now, It'd be like $60,000 a year we'd have extra for $5 a week, $250-something a year. So giving your money is important. Man, think about your time. You have potentially, according to what we've just done, 41 hours left to invest your time in people and in ministry. And I don't think that the way 
if we, if we do proper self-examination, I don't know that we can really be proud of how we spend that 41 hours. We can always steward our time better. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-six says, He is filled with craving all day long, but the righteous give and don't hold back. See, these sheep give, and they don't even realize what they're doing. They are blessing people, they are serving God, and they are demonstrating a transformed heart. Who are they doing this to? Jesus clarifies in verse 40. They say, hey, when did we do this? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Here's the thing, and you're not going to like it when I say this. Let me explain a little bit more. Jesus is talking about how Christians treat other Christians. He's not talking about the poor and destitute worldwide. That is consistent with Jesus' ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. Galatians 6.10, we're to to do good to everyone, but especially the household of faith. Jesus qualifies these people by specifically calling them his brothers. And he never refers to a non-Christian as his brother. Ever. Never. Doesn't happen in the New Testament. I think specifically in the early church, they got something right that we don't. They understood that to be a Christian was to be a missionary. It was to be a follower of Christ, not a church attender. Not somebody who shows up for an hour a week, but someone who is fully vested. And so what happens if you're a disciple in the first century? Well, they send a guy named Saul to come catch you and throw you in prison. The very thing that Jesus commends people for doing. I was naked, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was in prison, and you visited me. How do we treat each other when it comes to our stuff, our time, our talent, and our treasures. Our third and final point. Self-absorption and self-interest lead to separation and suffering. Self-absorption and self-interest lead to separation and suffering. Verses 41 through 46. Then Jesus will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. And then they too will answer, Lord, certainly if we knew it was you, we would have done something. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes, or sick, or in prison, and not help you? And he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. In contrast to the sheep who are rewarded for what they did do, the goats are condemned for what they did not do. And there is a goat spirit in all of us. We have it. We're going to get... Service can be inconvenient. I don't have... Yes, I know 41 hours left in my week, but I don't have the time to do it. It's kind of like the little boy at offering time. The plates were being passed at church. And, uh, you know, they were kind of coming down the aisle, making their way back, and he saw it coming. He leans over to Dad and says, Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. There we go. 
don't pay for me, I'm only five. You know, hey, like the kids eat free, kids go to church for free. And there's this spirit where if we can get by without doing it, we will do it. And that is the exact opposite of a heart that's been transformed and sees giving of our time, talent, and treasure as a vital component of a living faith. Now again, it, it appears that for the goats, their judgment is completely based upon their works. That appears to be the case, but it's not. Because if the least of these is how they treated Christian workers, Christians, disciples, missionaries, then their lack of care for Christian workers, for Christians, is a lack of care for God and a lack of care for the gospel. And so their lack of service to God's representatives, which is representatives are are not missionaries and pastors. They are Christians, disciples. Their lack of service to God's representatives proves their lack of faith. Ultimately, their judgment is based upon their response to the gospel. And friends, it should go without saying that Christians cannot be so wrapped up in their own concerns that they're completely indifferent and apathetic to the needs of believers around them, let alone to the needs of the lost world. And here's the thing that really makes this stick. Okay, this is the very end of Matthew 25. You know what happens in Matthew 26? Jesus gets arrested, and he gets tried, and he gets crucified. So Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, becomes the very last word that Jesus gives to his disciples before he's crucified. They're literally his last words. And we know he gets back up, and he gives the Great Commission, and he does things like that, and there's other teaching that he gives. But this is his last pre-resurrection teaching to his disciples in this gospel. Well, here's the challenge. When we think about stewardship, you know, if you hear, hey, we're going to have a stewardship sermon this morning, you immediately think that all we're going to do is talk about money. And so, like, you take your wallet from the back pocket and you put it in the front pocket. You're like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Keep that nice and safe. Nobody can't get anybody get to that one. Um, Listen, that is, that's important. You know, we we just uh, finished our, um, finished last year, 2015, And we have 198 families in our church. Uh, You know how many giving statements we generated? 130. So that means only 65% of people who call this church their home actually give to support it. Now that's already taking out all the kids. KK's done all the research. So we have 200 families. We have 130 families that give. So we have 60 families that can give one cent that can be tracked. Are we your church or are we your family? That's a huge question. And I say that not to guilt you. I say it because I think sometimes we think, all right, if I'm not giving this, then it doesn't make any sense for me to do this. Give according to what you can and God will bless you. And you know what? Next year, you might be able to do more. And next year, God will grow you in faithfulness. That's huge. Think about what you're doing when it comes to giving of your money. When it comes to your time, I don't think there's anybody here that would say, you know what, I ain't got time for that. No, you don't have time for that because other things are more important to you than serving God's people, than serving the lost, than serving the Lord. And the truth is this concept of stewardship is not as strange as we might make, oh, stewardship, it's really hard, I don't know what that is, 
I need a special class. I need instruction. I need tutoring. I need remedial work. Stewardship. I don't understand it. How many of you have been on a cruise? Anybody been on a cruise? Yeah, more than I thought. I knew you went on a cruise, Scott Crouch. Um, Anybody ever flown on an airplane? Cruise or airplane? Raise your hand. Man, that's most of us. You've been on, Petro kids have been on an airplane? I'm shocked. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, she's going to talk back to me now. Here's the deal. If you've ever been on a cruise or you've been on an airplane, you know what a steward is. He's the guy that can make amazing animals out of your your laundry, your towels. You're like, whoa, what is that? It's a pterodactyl and it's moving. What is up with that? Battery-powered towels. Um, I don't think they call them stewards or stewardesses anymore. I don't know if that's the politically correct term. Flight attendant? Is it flight attendant now? Okay, we're not going to be politically correct. We'll call them a steward because that kind of fits with what we're talking about. A steward on a cruise ship or a steward or stewardess on a plane, you know what they do. They don't own the plane. (laughs) Not at all. They don't make enough to, to own the plane. The company owns the plane, but on behalf of the company, the steward or stewardess is to make use of the facilities and the resources of the company's owned material to make the travelers comfortable. They are to manage what the company owns for the benefit of everybody who happens to be on that ship or in that plane. And so they dispense goods, they take care of people, and they make sure that they are doing everything that they can to manage the resources of the company well for the benefit of the people that are involved. Guys, that's what God asks you to do with your time, your talent, and your treasure. Are you managing it well? So my encouragement today is just to get you to think through this issue, to say, where do you need to grow? What do you need to do? Are you using your talents? Are you just serving in an area that you've been recruited into? Or are you actually using how God has empowered and you know, made you to serve? Now, I'll admit, we have asked the question in a little bit of an unfair way. Are you giving more than you are receiving? Can anybody really answer that question affirmatively? I mean, what have you received? Everything. Where'd you get your personality from? God. Where'd you get your breath from? God. God uses your family and he uses circumstances. But everything you have, you have received. How can you give more than you receive? You can't. So really the question is, what is your attitude? Do you come to God kind of holding on and saying, don't take it from me? Or are you open-handed? Say, God, you bless me. And everything that I have comes from you. So you know what? I don't need to hold on to it because I can trust you. If you say I need to give it, I'm going to give it. Because you're going to provide for my needs. My job doesn't provide for my needs. My God provides for my needs. And I'll close with this. I don't know that there's a ministry that we have on campus or off campus that isn't hurting for volunteers. I mean, we have all kinds of relationships with organizations here. And I I hear people say, man, we've got a great relationship with this ministry. And you know what I find out? We've got one person that volunteers there regularly. That's a great relationship with a local ministry. That's pretty pathetic for a church of 350 people. 
have one person who volunteers somewhere regularly and say, we really support this ministry strongly. And so I don't know how God has wired you to what you want to do. What I can say is that we will make a promise that if you want to invest your time, talent, and treasures, if you want to give more than you receive, we'll help you find that place. Because there are ministries that need your service. And the truth is, every single one of us has time that we've not managed well. We have time that we've not used for the most important thing because we've, we've piddled it away on frivolous things. What are you going to do with your time to serve God? Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we will sing about following you, and then we won't. We will talk about how sweet it is to trust you and to obey you and to walk in your steps and to praise your name. And then we undo the very words that we have sung with our actions. To God today, I pray that by your spirit, you will search our hearts and our minds, that you will lay bare our attitudes We make everything about life all about us. And to the degree that we do that, we're guilty of idolatry. God, you are a great and mighty king, worthy of our worship and our service and everything that we have. Help us for your glory, for your benefit alone, to seek to give more than we receive. In Jesus' name we pray.